Thank you again for joining me in this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. This is actually going to be a pretty brief episode, one of the Freed Bites. So no introduction, no leeway, just a short scripted show. These are somewhere in between the Freed Way ones, which are kind of off-the-cuff reflections as I commute to work, and my longer, more uh, plotted, well-researched, and well-thought-out. Not that this isn't researched, but it's just not meant to be a long, in-depth, and academic um, uh paper or episode. So this uh, comes from some questions about why I'm not a dispensationalist. So dispensationalism is by and large a somewhat scary sounding theological term that may be unfamiliar to many or at least not well understood by a lot. Now, ironically, I found that many people who have been brought up in dispensational churches or hold to theological positions that are broadly dispensational don't even really understand the system or its history. Uh, this short episode is not meant to give a detail or even summary of dispensationalism and its various iterations, and there are a lot of them. Uh, it's questionable historical pedigree within the church, which is uh, very problematic, or the numerous issues that many would have with the system as a whole. That is, <clears throat> this short episode is not going to be a comprehensive interaction with dispensationalism and the issues related to its peculiar and often inconsistent hermeneutical method, its ecclesiastical commitment to a strong discontinuity between the people of God and the Old and New Covenants, and its rather creative eschatological commitments. I'm not even here going to compare covenant theology with dispensationalism or contrast the two. There are numerous works that do this, and I'll list many resources towards the end uh, of this of this. Uh, short talk. Instead, I'm going to give simply my reflections on two passages that make it nearly impossible for me to accept dispensationalism. Someone would have to radically change my mind on these two passages before I would even reconsider other passages. These are kind of the linchpins for me. Often, when advocates of dispensationalism of some variety or, or some sort of it present a summary of the system, they're going to give a rather innocuous and vague statement about it. In essence, they claim dispensationalism is simply the view that we can divide up redemptive history into different periods or dispensationalisms, uh, dispensations. Traditionally, they divide biblical history into seven different epochs or dispensations, hence the name, in which God works differently with his people and with the world. We can think of God's relationship to Adam and Eve before the fall, which is the dispensation of innocence, and after the fall, which is the dispensation of conscience, and then from the flood to Abraham, which is the dispensation of government, and Abraham to Moses, the dispensation of promise, and so forth. So the unsuspecting layperson hearing this for the, for the first time may simply think that dispensationalism is an artificial taxonomy of the biblical timeline. While I don't think most dispensationalists intend this to be misleading, it is a very watered-down presentation of the theology, and like most things, the devil is in the details. For dispensationalism is not merely a taxonomy, that would be to declaw the system. 
dispensationalism holds that God actually changes the way he covenantally relates to these people within these eras or the dispensations, with the main difference being between that of the Old Testament believer or Israel and the New Testament believers, the church, which they say begins at Pentecost. While progressive dispensationalism has begun to adapt the system to move away from some of its implications, <clears throat> this would mean that the promises of the Old Testament and the Gospels up to Pentecost are, with an axe are included in that are actually only for Israel and only secondarily by secondary extrapolations applied to the church. And really, we shouldn't even say applied to the church, but rather have applications to the church. There's a nuanced difference, but important. This means that much of Jesus' teaching was not for the church, but for Israel. This is why the system, when compared to covenant theology, has been called a system of discontinuity. By the way, I should add about halfway through here that the, the dispensationalists are wonderful, godly brothers and sisters. Uh, in, in, well, I mean, there, there's always exceptions. There are in the Reformed Church as well. There are uh, wolves among, among sheep. But, the, but these are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord who, who love the Lord uh, and who love his word and take it seriously. I do not mean this as a critique of them. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say they are dishonest. One of my own uh, co-admins of the Sage Stage group, Randy, is one of my most dear Christian brothers, someone who I hold in the utmost highest esteem, uh, and he is um, a pretty adamant dispensationalist. Now, going back to the, to, to the episode, it's because of this hard ontological distinction between the church and Israel that drive much of the conclusions of the system. It's why the church has to be raptured before the tribulation so God can reestablish his program with Israel to fulfill his promises to her about the temple and the land and the David king on the throne and of a, a reconstituted Israel. It's why there's a literal millennium during which Christ reigns as that king. It's why the gospel first goes to the Jews and then to the Gentiles again. Here, I'll stick to those large, seemingly essential components of dispensationalism, but if you want to see the extremes that this distinction can lead some to, please see the or listen to the resources that I'll, that I'll list at the end. But at the root of it all seems to be this hard ontological distinction between Israel and the church that is fundamental to any form of dispensationalism. For those of us with reservations or just flat-out concerns about dispensational theology, it is this discontinuity between the two peoples of God, Israel and the church, that is inherent to dispensationalism that most of our criticism is focused on. For some, they see the, quote, the literal hermeneutic as the root of the cause for this view. For others, they try to dismantle it by attacking the notion of a secret pre-tribulational rapture of the church— think left behind, and still for others, they think the view of the millennium is the way to go about critiquing it. But for all of us, these are all different roads into a critique of what we believe the real problem is with the system. Again, that hard ontological distinction between God's people in the old covenant and God's people in the new covenant between Israel and the church. And so here in this episode, I'm going to engage with a critique of the hermeneutical commitment of dispensationalists to what is called the literal hermeneutic, though I could. 
I'm not going to engage in the many passages that they use to try to support a secret rapture of the church before a literal seven-year tribulation, though I could. I'm not going to refute their readings of various passages dealing with the nature of the millennial reign as a future reign of Christ, again, though I could. I'm not even going to review or engage their view of the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, which is essential to their overall dispensationalist scheme, again, though I could. Here, I'm going to simply look at two passages that I think are categorically in opposition to dispensationalism's hard ontological discontinuity between Israel and the church. They are Ephesians 2, 11-22 and Romans 11, 17-24. While there are, in my estimation, many other passages that could also rebut this hard distinction between Israel and the church, and while much more could be said even about these two passages that I will list, I'm going to attempt to here briefly show why these two passages make it theologically impossible for me to affirm dispensationalism. So let's read them. This is Ephesians 2, 11-22 in the NASB. Quote, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself if uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into the dwelling of God in the Spirit. End quote. In this passage, Paul makes one of the clearest statements on the relationship of the Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ to the Jews and to Israel herself. We must keep in mind the intracovenantal nature of Israel that Paul has laid out between visible and invisible Israel, ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, that is, that are part of the covenant community, circumcised in the promises, and those who have ratified that faith unto themselves and are circumcised of heart. Paul makes this principle clear in passages like Romans 2, 28-29 and 9, 6-7. In our present passage, Paul reminds the Gentiles of their prior relationship to Israel, prior to their new life in Christ. When they were separated from Christ prior to their conversion, Paul marks them out as being excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope, and without God in the world. For Paul, pagan Gentiles, those who have not been regenerated in Christ, are ontologically separated from Israel and her God and thus have no rights to the promises and the benefits of the covenant, leaving them without any hope. It is only when they come to Christ and are offered in, and are covered in his blood that they are brought near. What does it mean to be brought near? If previously they were far from God because they were excluded from Israel, they are brought near in the blood. 
This overcomes the prior state of exclusion into the state of embrace. In order to maintain this space, let me simply summarize verses 14 to 18 as Paul saying that in Christ, the walls of division have been torn down and that God was doing something to build both Jew and Gentile into one body, a unity between the two in Christ. But what does that look like? Are Jews plucked from Israel and Gentiles plucked from the nation and both brought together into this new third thing known as the church? No, Paul tells us starting in verse 19. Now that the Gentiles have been brought near in Christ and have equal access to God via the Spirit, Paul tells us the features of the new state. The Gentiles are now, they are, no longer strangers and aliens. That is, they're no longer foreigners. They're now fellow citizens with the saints. They're now members of God's household. They're part of a temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And that temple is being built uh, as the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul, now that Paul here is not saying that the Jews and the Gentiles both leave their homes and come into a new land to become a new third thing. Rather, the Gentiles who were far off are now brought near. The Gentiles who were excluded from the commonwealth are now fellow citizens. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, but are now no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners. The picture here is that the Gentiles, even if they were Jewish proselytes, would have to worship in another court, separated by high walls, apart from the common worship of God's people, are now fully included. They used to be strangers, aliens, foreigners to Israel and her promises, but now they are no longer so. They are now fellow citizens. These are not ecclesiastical terms. These are civic terms. Indeed, it is the commonwealth that they were previously estranged from. It's not as though God took an American and a Canadian and moved them into land to make them a new country, Canmerica. Rather, the Canadian who has always been a foreigner and a stranger to America, even if granted resident alien status, while still not fully included, is now adopted as a full son of the king or the president, to keep the analogy. What is completely missing here is the notion that the regenerate Gentile convert to have membership in this new group, the Gentile church, which stands in distinction with God's Old Testament people of promise, Israel. It is precisely the covenants of promise given to Israel, which the Gentiles were strangers to, but are no longer. In Galatians 3, Paul tells us that the blessing of the promise to Abraham was promised to his seed, not seeds, and that promise to Christ, in a very real sense, the new covenant just is the fulfillment of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. To be in Christ, to be a child of faith in the promise, just is to be a child of Abraham, regardless of if one is a Jew or a Gentile. Now, there are volumes of more that can be said about this passage and its nuances, but it seems to me that the core metaphysics of the passage is not the creation of the church for the Gentiles, but the inclusion of the Gentiles in the already existing people of God, the people of promise, the Israel of God, and her covenants of promise. This makes a hard ontological distinction between the church and Israel, such that there were promises to Israel that are not for the church, or there are covenant blessings that are for Israel and not for the Gentile believer, such that the church must even be removed from the earth so that God can continue his work with Israel, appears to me to build back up that exact wall of separation that Paul says was removed. 
It puts the Gentiles not just in the outer courts of the temple, but in a completely different temple altogether. In one sense, dispensationalism builds a wall that is even higher and more impenetrable than what existed prior to Christ because before Gentiles were at least able to be partially included with God's people and temple. Granted, they now have full and direct access to God via Christ, and so the benefits are surely immeasurably greater. I would not want to accuse dispensationalists of seeing Gentiles as second-class citizens of heaven or some such nonsense. But in this world, in this dispensation of grace, they are not rubbing shoulders with God's people of promise, the Jews. They're not even in the same temple. They're ontologically separated and will even be removed from the world before they ever share in the same covenant of promises. I simply see no way to reconcile Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2 and dispensationalism's ontological distinction between Israel as the people of God and the church. The next passage, and this will be far briefer, is Romans 11, 17 through 24. And then as be it reads, quote, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were cut, broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for it is God who did not spare the natural branches. He will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell. Severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. But if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? End quote. Once again, the whole, whole commentaries could be written on Paul's comments here in the passage. Their context in Romans 11, the broader intercontextuality of Romans 9 through 11, and even more broadly, all of Romans or even Pauline theology generally. However, for the purposes of this episode, I want to make one rather simple metaphysical observation that drives the theology here. I'm not going to go into all the ways that this passage could relate to dispensationalism, the future of nat national Israel and other such issues. The one, single, uh, the one simple and I think almost incurably obvious observation is this. There is only one olive tree. Notice that there is one tree of promise. There is the tree that is nourished by the rich root, and the Israelites who are not circumcised of heart are cut off from that olive tree. It is, it is that olive tree that the Gentile Christians are grafted into. They are grafted into that one tree. To put it in terms of the passage we saw previously, for really this passage is just an image of what Paul had didactically taught in Ephesians 2, the Gentiles were separated from the olive tree of Israel, but in the blood of Christ they are brought near. They were grafted in. They were foreign branches, strangers to the root, but they have now been grafted in. Ask yourself what it would do to the theology of Paul and his teaching of Romans 11 to say that these wild olive branches who had been grafted on in Christ must then later be removed from the life-giving root while God continues his plan with the original tree. That there are promises in the sap of the root that are for the original branches only, but that the new branches do not have access to it in Christ. The ecclesiastical view of dispensationalism seems to me to be out of accord with the teaching of Paul in both Romans and Ephesians. 
Again, here, I readily admit that this is not an in-depth treatment of the intricacies of either passage. And if one of my listeners is a dispensationalist who would like to try to make uh, to take me to task for missing something that they think is relevant to radically alter the clear and obvious meaning of these passages, I'm open to discussing it with them. Please send me your questions. However, at this time, I see no way to read these passages into these passages, an ontological distinction between a Gentile church and the nation of Israel, and it seems to me that such a program would do exegetical violence to the theological tapestry of Paul and the entirety of the scriptures. Thank you again for joining. Good night, and God bless. For your puppies walking down the street, we'll fill his butt.